So we are looking at, in the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment this morning, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. We're also going to be looking at Jesus' commentary on it, which is in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Look at what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, Now, let me begin with a word of prayer before we dive into this. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come together today. Father, to be able to look at your word. Father, to realize that your word speaks truth to all issues. Father, I thank you uh, that, that in a culture that is so confused, Father, in a culture that is so torn apart even by divisions on this issue that, that we're not left to figure it out on our own, but Father, that you are the designer of all things that we are, and Father, that you give us principles and truths. And Father, I thank you for the way you continue to teach me, and I pray now that you would speak through me and in spite of me. Father, help me to, to accurately Reflect what your word says, not to speak my own opinions, but to to really speak what you say. Father, I pray that you'd help each one of us, no matter where we're at, to have hearts that are open to hear and to respond to what you may say to us this morning. Father, I pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in the past decades, there have been numerous surveys done, especially amongst young adults and their opinions about evangelical Christians. And, and most of them come back kind of with a negative view. Most of them have this perception of Christianity as a set of rules, rules defining what Christians are against. And chief amongst all the things that Christians are against is they have a lot of rules about sex, and that's the general perspective. Now, I will tell you that it's easy to read even the passages we're looking at this morning and come to that conclusion. I mean, Jesus specifically says it's not only that adultery is wrong, if you have the wrong thought, that's wrong. And so, how do we understand that? Is, is God against sex? Is that what the Bible is teaching? In our series of the Ten Commandments, uh, what we're seeing is that all the commandments, there are more rules that God gives us to live by, but they're all more than that. They're all teaching principles, foundational principles that he wants us to understand, to build our lives upon, and to build our culture upon. And so when we look at this foundational principle in the seventh commandment, we started to look at this last week. I thank Julie Julie Slattery for being here and sharing with us as part of that message. And and what we started to see in that, that the foundational truth, these foundational truths that if we remember, they're kind of like a building block at the foundation of what we would like to build as our lives and our our culture. If we remove them, the the tower is going to fall because there's no foundation. And the foundational principle of the seventh commandment that we talked about last week and starting is that God isn't against sex, God's for marriage. And everything that the Bible teaches is God's pro-marriage and he's pro-intimacy within marriage. And when you look at then all that he teaches about against adultery or against sex outside of marriage, it's not that God is teaching that he's keeping something from us. It's not that, okay, this is pleasurable and I don't want you to do something you know, that is good and pleasurable. What he's teaching is, is here's something wonderful. And I, and I don't want you to take that which is wonderful and to somehow let, let Satan distort it so that it becomes destructive. Now, part of that is understanding even what the Bible teaches. You see, when it teaches about the whole idea of sex, it's teaching, it's not just a physical activity. It's something that is unique and different. It, it literally has a power. Its nature is different. It has a power. And in a sense, we could say that it's like fire. Think about fire. Fire is a tremendous, powerful thing. 
It can be powerful for good. It can be used for cooking and for heating homes and, and of tremendous value and worth. But if you let it get out of, of control, that power becomes destructive and it can quickly destroy a home or burn a forest or take a life. The key of understanding the power of fire is keeping it contained. You see, if you have fire, and if it is in the fireplace, if it is in the fire pit, if it's in a place that is contained, then it is of great value. But if it escapes outside of, what it was, of that containment, it can quickly destroy. And what God is saying is that sex is like a fire, that it is wonderful within the containment. God has created it and given it a fireplace. And if we're within that fireplace, it's a wonderful thing. But if it, we let it get outside of the boundaries it was intended to burn in, you see, then it can quickly become destructive, scorching our souls. Now, the Bible does give many warnings against sexual sin. But what we need to realize, it's not as the world often claims that God is restricting us from things that are enjoyable. But it's God giving us warnings about taking his good gift and allowing it to be distorted so that it becomes destructive. See, it's not that God is saying no to sex, but God is saying no to sex outside of its proper bounds. He's saying fire is good, but don't let the fire get out of the fireplace. That's the whole idea here. It's an incredible blessing within the, its, its bounds, but it's very destructive outside of it. Now, when we understand the culture, again, the culture lies about this. It de denies the sense that it's something that is so distinctive and has this power one of the lies that is very uh, common within our culture even to today, today is this idea that it's, it's just a physical act. You know, that it's just, well, it's two people come together, consenting people, and, and what we do with our bodies doesn't impact our souls. A lot of this grows from kind of the, an evolutionary perspective. From an evolutionary perspective, we're just the result of evolution. All we are is bodies. All we are is animals. And so we should see sex as this response to this biological drive, and it's nothing more than that. But we're not the product of evolution. We're the product of creation. And God has not made us as just a body, but he has made us as a body-soul creature. Now, the interesting thing is while we see this is linked to evolution, it's actually not a new lie. It's a lie that Satan has been trying to push for thousands of years. We know it because we can look in, in Paul, and he's responding to uh, believers in the Corinthian church 2,000 years ago, and he's addressing this same lie that many of them believed. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 14. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but, the, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Now, I want you to see the first thing, food is meant for the body, he's talking about it they were referring to that sexually. Now, here's what happened. They had a common saying that Paul is quoting. You know, food is meant for the stomach, stomach's for food. Basically, food's only physical. You know, so, you know, so we have a physical desire, we eat, it helps the body grow, it's not spiritual at all, so it doesn't really matter what you eat. And they applied this to sex, and they said, well, just like food is physical, sex is the same thing. Both we have a hunger, both we have a desire, both we kind of satisfied that desire, and it doesn't impact us in any way. It's just sex. And again, people are still saying that today. Now, let's first of all think about the first statement. Is food for the body and, and that's it? And so what we do and what we eat is just satisfies our, our hunger and it doesn't impact us any other way. I don't know about you. I, I, if I eat, it impacts not only my stomach, it impacts my, my belly and my, my thighs. My, you know, it makes us big. Well, it's even beyond just making us bigger there. 
The fact is, is that what you eat impacts your heart. It impacts your mind. It impacts your emotions. It impacts your outlook of life. This was powerfully illustrated back in 2004 by a documentary some of you might remember called Supersize Me. And it was this guy, Morgan Spurlock, and he, the film just followed him for 30 days, and what he did is he decided for 30 days to eat nothing but McDonald's. So he gained you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, he ate McDonald's every meal for 30 days. In the course of the week, he was gonna eat every item each week from on the McDonald's menu. And what he found is in the course of 30 days, he gained 24 pounds, he developed heart palpitations, he experienced depression, he experienced lethargy, he had headaches, he had sexual dysfunction. All these were effects from the food he ate. So it wasn't just, oh, I just ate and it didn't impact. It impacted every aspect of his, of his physical health, of his emotions, of his feelings. Now think about that, that's just fast food. Okay, can we eat anything that's even worse? Well, what if you ate poison? Well, you just, it's just food. You're just a poison mushroom, so what does it matter? Well, it kills you. Okay, what about ingesting drugs? Okay, if anybody has known anybody that has dealt with any addiction to drugs, does taking that drug impact more than their physical body? Yeah, it destroys everything. And so we look at this and we say, okay, there's foolishness of just saying, well, I just eat something and it doesn't impact me. No, it does. And what Paul is saying is that if we can see the foolishness of that, even more so, it's more foolish for someone to say, well, the body is just for sex and sex is for the body. It's just physical. And that's what people in Paul's day were trying to argue, that's as people do for us. And we've got to say, no, no, we're not just a physical being. We're made by God as body, soul creatures that our souls are linked to our body. So what we do with our body impacts our soul as well. And there are consequences spiritually and relationally to what we do physically. Sex isn't just physical. See, God is concerned with what we do with our bodies because we are linked as body-soul creatures. The Bible's clear on that. And so Paul confronts that lie, and he says, okay, it's not just food for the body. Okay, here's the reality. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body, and God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. And he's saying, no, we are body-soul beings. We're made for God, and therefore, what we do with our body should not only honor God, but should draw us closer. Because what we do is either going to move us further away from God or closer to him. And so God is the, the, wants to be the Lord of our whole being. And what we do physically impacts us. So let's even take food. He's the one that made food enjoyable. And we can honor him in the way that we enjoy food. He's the one that made sex enjoyable. We can honor him in the way that we enjoy our sexuality. And he wants us to honor him by keeping things in the confines of what he's created. Now, when we do that, we've got to understand then not only the rules, but the why. Why is it that God created this? And, and, he, and he tells us that, again, we're not only physical beings, but sex is something that has a unique power. It's not just a physical act. There's a power that unites and binds within a covenant relationship. Now, to, take, to even show this, let me, there's a lot of places we could show this taught in the Bible. Let me go back to the very beginning. Let me go back to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of creation. And you see the very first picture of mankind. Genesis 1. Verse 27, we're told that the climax of creation, God creates mankind. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then we're told that, that as he 
he created man, he gives them a command. And look at the very first command recorded in the Bible. Next verse. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, the very first command was, Adam and Eve, you're there, you're naked, have lots of sex and lots of babies. That's the very first command in the Bible. Now, you look at that and you think, I didn't know that was in the Bible. That's that's the very first command. Within marriage, this is what I want you to do. Now, you look at that and say, if that's the very first command that God gives, God's not anti-sex. Well, not only that, let's go to the very second picture of of what we see in humanity, Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, we see that God is, you know, he kind of backs up and he tells us how he created Eve. And first of all, he created Adam. And Adam's there by himself and it's not good for man to be alone. God knew that, but Adam didn't know it. So he starts to realize it. So now God said, okay, now let me give you the helpmate that, that you need. And we read in verse 22, and the rib that God, he took a rib from Adam, he made woman. The rib that God took from, um, from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. He brings this now woman to this man and look at his response. Look at Adam's response. Then the man said, this is last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Now, this doesn't come across in English as much, but it's poetry. Now, this is the very first day of creation. Suddenly, God brings Eve to Adam, and the immediate thing that he does is he bursts out in poetry. Now, he literally is probably inventing a new form of speech. And he's basically saying, this is so good, I've got to think of some new way to say it. And he's either in poetry or song, we're not really sure. But what you see in the very first chapters of the book, Genesis 1, first commandment, be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 2 brings him to his singing and poetry. And you have this incredible picture that says, God is pro-marriage, God is pro-sex. But there's something even here that teaches us something deeper about the nature of sex, the power of it, and how it fits into this. Because the Bible makes it clear that it's not just consent, an act between consenting adults. It's part of this binding, permanent relationship that God has created and has the power to strengthen that. Look at the very next verse, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this is within marriage, a one man, one woman, they come together, they become married, and they become one flesh. There's a physical act that kind of combines them, that unites them. And this was designed to be part of this much broader union. So that when you look at this, it's, it's in a sense a sacrament. It's an outward sign of an inward reality. Because in a sense, when you're involved in sex within marriage, you're saying, I belong completely and exclusively to you, and I'm acting that out. It's in a sense saying, I'm giving you my body as a token of how I've given you the rest of my life. I'm opening up to you physically as a token of the fact that I've opened up to you in every other way. That it's proclaiming and and sealing. And in a sense, it's almost like covenant glue. So on your wedding day, that if you wait until you get married, and then your wedding day, that you you get involved and and, and you you consummate that marriage, and it seals you in a powerful way. And then as you're married over the years, it's a, a renewal ceremony that celebrates those truths, unites you together. That's within marriage. That's God's design. That's the fireplace. But what happens when we take it out of the fireplace? See, when we take it out of that, it can't say those things. When we're involved in a sexual relationship out of marriage, it's basically saying, you know, you meet my needs. You make me happy. You give me pleasure. So I want to be with you because you give me pleasure. And what we do is we take this thing that's supposed to seal a covenant and we make it something that's a consumer item. Because a consumer item is basically, I'm... I'm getting this because you're meeting my need. 
And so because you make me happy, you make me feel good, I'm going to engage in this. But a consumer item always means that if you stop meeting my need, I might go somewhere else. If I find somewhere else that might meet my need better, I can go somewhere else. Because it's not about what can I give to you, but what can I get from you. And it actually is the opposite of the commitment that God has designed us to have. And so God has designed sex to work only in this kind of commitment relationship. And when we have it there, it strengthens and it binds. But when you take it outside of that, because now I have made sex something that's consumer item, it actually takes away some of that. It loses that binding power. And it actually does something that destroys us. Let me even go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, we were there a few minutes ago when we had Paul talking about this whole idea of this lie of, you know, well, sex is just physical, it's just a part of the body. Well, then he goes in the next verse in verse 15, and he, and he refers back to Genesis chapter 2. He refers back to that first picture that we have of a man and woman and where God talks about the sexual act as being uniting in one flesh. Look what he says. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. As a follower of Christ, that Christ is living in us and saying, okay, well, if you get involved in someone outside of marriage, it's like joining Christ to a prostitute. That, that's, that's wrong. It's sick. It's, it's, it doesn't make sense. Well, and then he goes on and he says that any, the sexual act is something that is uniting because look what it says. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one in body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. And so what Paul is saying here is when two people have sex, even if it's one time, even if it's in what our culture calls casual sex, there's a sense that that act has a power of somehow uniting our souls in a way that we're linked. In other words, there is no such thing as casual sex. See, in a marriage, it's supposed to unite you. It's part of the mystery and magic of what is, that God has designed and has this uniting power. In a sense, we talked about it's almost like covenant glue, covenant cement. But if we engage in sex lightly, it still has a binding effect, whether we want it to or not. And so let me take you in for example. I got a couple pieces of paper last night. I got a pink one and a black one, and I let them sleep together last night. And, 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 I, and, and I let them, I put a little uh, covenant glue between them. Not, not a lot, it was just casual glue. And, uh, and they slept together with casual glue. And, and now the two have become one. Now what happens is to say, well, okay, I don't want this relationship. And so I start, I'm gonna very carefully try to take these two and tear them apart. But what happens is they don't tear very, even if I'm careful, what happens is you could tell they both have lost something of themselves. See, Jesus talked about Matthew 6, that uh, we're no longer two but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. What does it say? When we are joined together in such a way that there's a oneness, when we try to separate it, it never goes well. And, and we know that, especially within divorce, and, and that's always the case. You know, there's no such thing as a clean break. But even when we are engaged just in what we think is a casual sexual relationship, you can't have a clean break. There's always part of us that we've joined with the other person. And so we walk away and there's a tearing of our soul. We've lost part of ourselves. 
And people will talk about casual sex, but what you realize is that there's nothing casual about this. Every time that we're engaged, whether we want to admit it or not, whatever culture says, every time that we're intimate with another person's body, the fact is that there are memories that are stay there. There's something that is joined. There's, you lose your part of yourself every time. Every time that you're involved, you take that which God has called sacred and wonderful and precious, and we make it cheap. And happens, what we've got to realize is that that which God has given to us, something to bind and complete us. When we're involved in, an, uh, in a way that is outside of that kind of, it's, it isn't binding, it isn't completing us, it's actually tearing something apart of who we are. Shredding our self-image, you know, hurting our ability to get in meaningful relationships. And so it does damage. It does damage, first of all, to our, to our being, to our soul to us personally. See, it tears apart who, part of who you are as a person. You can't walk away from it unscathed. And what we do is we might build up calluses, but those calluses are just continuing to cover up these places that were wounded. And, and we've left part of ourselves with the other person. We're carrying those memories. Look what Paul says about this again in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual and moral person sins against his own body. And what he's saying here is that, you know, every other sin we can do, and it's, it might just be our soul, but when we do this, we're involving our body in such a way that we're body-soul creatures. It's not less of a sin. In a sense, it impacts us more. It does greater harm, greater hurt to us, because it involves our body as well as just our, our decisions. And what's amazing here is that Within, with all these things, we talk about harm. There are countless studies that have been done over the last few decades by non-Christians looking at the impact of, of casual sex. And they're not trying to prove Christianity right in any way, but what they do is they consistently prove the truthfulness of what God is saying here. Because they're proving the truthfulness in a sense, it's, it's, you know, what it's saying is that if we go against God's, if we remove the foundational block, if you take the block out, it's always going to result in tragedy. It's never going to work. So let's take, for example, let's say teenage sexuality. There was one study talked about girls that were involved sexually, uh, sexually active as teenagers. They were three times more likely to be depressed as girls who are abstinent. You see, you know, you want a path towards depression, towards struggle, emotional struggle, get involved sexually. It's not a good thing. It destroys you. Even girls that are one time experienced with sex, one time the rates of depression go up significantly. Another one found that suicide attempts for sexual active teens is six times higher than those that are virgins. Six times. And you look at that and you say, well, this is a good thing. No, no, my friends, this is not, this is secular research saying this is true. If I remove the foundation, it always causes destruction. That's what God is warning us against. Not only hurts our soul, it hurts our ability to form intimate relationships. You see, again, God gave sex as this glue, this covenant cement in a sense, to help us become and stay bound together in a totally committed relationship. But what happens is that when we're involved, you know, if I take this and I glue to another person, I glue to another person, what happens is it loses its attaching ability. And again, there's numerous research that shows this to be the case. Like what uh, Hebrews talks about, Hebrews chapter 13, let marriage be uh, held in honor amongst all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. 
for God will judge the sexual moral and the adulterous. Now it's saying, okay, God is holding it up. He's saying this is a good thing. This is a great thing, and God's trying to protect it. And when it says God will judge the sexual immoral and the adulterous, I want you to see what he's saying. It's not, well, if you do this, God's going to get you. It's a warning to saying, if you take the fire out of the fireplace, you're going to get burnt. See, God's moral law are like all the other laws. It's like, it's like you know, um, gravity. If I walk off of here, I'm going to fall. Gravity works 100% of the time. I can't think it doesn't and not be faced the consequence of falling to the ground. And the fact is that God's spiritual laws are just as true, and they work in the same way. They cannot be broken without consequence. Okay, let me show you some other studies. These are non-Christian studies referring to and affirming the same things. Um, you know, there's one study that, actually numerous studies, what they show is that if you are involved sexually before marriage, you're far more likely to get divorced. Uh, you know, one, one study, in, in fact, they followed couples, because a lot of couples, well, oh, we're going to get married, and we're sure we are, and so we're, you know, we're just kind of, okay, there was a study that was done by couples that ended up getting married later, and they looked at, okay, the couples that were involved sexually beforehand, and the couples that weren't, if you're involved sexually, you're twice as likely to get divorced in the first 10 years of marriage. Okay, so you say you want a good relationship. Okay, do you want to do the thing that's going to double your divorce rate? Is that a wise thing? Is that a good thing to do? If you're involved sexually before marriage, your, your chance of uh, being unfaithful in the marriage increase fourfold because you're already, you're already used to this idea of saying, okay, well, we can fudge on God's laws. My friends, God gives these ideas not to hold us back, but saying he's protecting that which is good. He doesn't want us to face the consequences. Well, how about after we're married? The warning is against adultery particularly. Well, it does incredible damage to our most meaningful relationships. And starting with somebody that, well, I can cheat and my wife or my husband will never find out. Yeah, they probably will. And even if they don't, it will do great damage. And even if you're not, not sure you want to stay in the marriage, it's going to, you want to damage your kids, you want to damage trust, you want to, I mean, it will do incredible damage. In fact, the Bible is inc it's incredibly graphic in so many places where it talks about just the impact of sexual sin. One of the places in, is in uh, Proverbs 7. I'm not going to read all of it, but I encourage you to go there because it's, it's incredibly graphic. Verse 22, it says, all at once he follows her, speaking of, of sexual temptation, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast. Till an arrow pierces its liver and a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. So basically, if you follow sexual temptation, it's like an ox walking into the slaughterhouse. It's a deer walking into a place where it's about to get shot in the liver and bleed out. It's going to cost him his life. Now, you know, the thing is, I could talk to just about anybody early in their marriage or relationship, and they're, oh, adultery's wrong. We all know that it does, does great damage. So why do people still do it? Why do, why do people do it even then they know that it's destructive? Proverbs 6, 32. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He, just, he, he who does it destroys himself. Why do we do that? Why do we do something that destroys us? Ultimately, I think part of it is we think we can get away with it. Chapter, Proverbs 6, 27. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burnt? Hey, we can't carry it. We cannot do it. We've got to realize, though, that it's, it's not just the act, it's the heart issue. There's a heart issue behind it, because if all I'm trying to do is to say, well, I'm going to say no, and, and, and meanwhile, I'm nurturing desire within my heart, the fact is, is 
God's not just concerned about what we do, he's concerned about with who we are. And ultimately, in fact, what I find is that numerous couples that I've been with, that one party has an, an affair or an adulterous relationship, and what happens is it never comes out of the blue. It's always someone kind of flirting around. It's somebody getting involved in porn. Somebody gets an on-run relationship, a relationship they build at work. And, and what happens is that over time, so I'm not going to do it, and I'm not committing adultery, but you're nurturing something in your heart. And in time, the real you slips out. That's what Jesus is referring to when he talks about Matthew 5. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, what he's saying here is that it's not just a matter of what we do. So if it's just a line of technically, I didn't commit adultery, and people will say, because I haven't done it, I'm good. And Jesus is saying there's a lot of people that are playing with the heart of adultery, that are nurturing something, that, that at the end of the day, you're, you're nurturing a heart that's going to lead you to that temptation. So when he says everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart, what he's doing is he's, he's saying the problem is our lustful desire. And it's not that we are tempted. It's not, I mean, you know, you have people that, you know, will walk by and if there's a temptation, there are times that we will face a temptation. We will face a thought. It's not like, oh, you're, you're tempted, and that's terrible. No, we will face that. I think about how James talks about temptation. It's, it's one thing to sit there and have the, you know, using this fishing analogy. It's one thing to have the worm go by and, oh, catch the worm. It's another thing to start following it. If we start following the worm, sooner or later we're going to bite and we're going to be hooked. And that's the whole idea, is that when he talks here even about sexual desire, he doesn't actually use the word that is usually used for lust or desire, sexual desire. He actually uses the word that is more commonly translated as covet. If we look at a woman covetously, what does it mean? It doesn't mean that there isn't a thought, but if we look at someone and we start to think, what would it be like to be with that person? And it may not just even be sexual desire. It may be something where, man, my, you know, I'm just disconnected from my spouse, and boy, they seem more understanding. They listen to me. They... I, what would it be like to be with them, even emotionally? And a lot of times it can start there, and suddenly I'm starting to covet, I'm starting to think about the person, and what it would be like to have intimacy, physical or otherwise. But the more that we start to think about that, what it's doing is it's setting us up to say, okay, we've already committed adultery in our heart. We've already have that desire in our heart, and if we nurture that heart, sooner or later, the defenses are going to come down, and we're going to fall on reality. Because we always do what we want. And if we're nurturing a heart that wants sin, then in time, we're going to fall into sin. We can hold, hold it back so long. And God is concerned with not only changing what we do, but who we are. And what does he call us to then? He calls us to radical action. Look at what it says. You know, if, if, the thing is that if we understand this is a major problem, we're going to look at temptation and we're going to see it as a major threat. The, the problem is, is that we look at that and you say, is it a little cut? Or is it cancer? See, if I have a little cut, well, I might put a Band-Aid on and continue on with whatever I'm doing. If I get a call from the doctor and saying, you have cancer, and we need radical decision, I'm not going to just put a Band-Aid on it. The fact of the matter is I'm going to do what I'm going to need to do, and it might mean some radical action. It might mean surgery. It might mean carving out part of my body. And I'm willing to do that because I know this cancer, if I let it grow, is going to kill me. And what Jesus is talking about here is when we talk about sexual desire, it's a cancer. We can't play with it. 
That's what he means when he says these words. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Basically, your right eye is your thoughts. If your thought life is such as causing you to sin, if you're sitting there and your thought life, good example, is computer. You know, if you're on, the, on porn and you're, you're there, hey, that's not a safe thing. And I'm thankful for ministries like Galvanize. We've got a great ministry Thursday night, Galvanize. You know, it's dealing with all kinds, for men, all kinds of, of addiction. A lot of those guys have dealing with, with pornography as part of that addiction. And these guys are guys saying, I'm going to take radical steps. I'm going to go to this group, and I'm going to admit that, and I'm going to seek help because I need that help. So if you write out, you deal with it. Don't play with it. It's a serious thing. It's a cancer. He continues, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members members than your whole body going to hell. And basically, that's dealing with our actions and saying, if you're doing something, recognize, you know, we need to remove the ground where the root can grow. And so if I have this relationship and I feel it's a little flirtatious, cut it off. If you've got stuff that you're watching on TV or if you're, you know, doing things as far as entertainment and it's leading you down the wrong road, don't play with it. Take radical steps because you understand that these things can destroy you. Now, how, what's this mean to look out? Yeah, I mean, even things like uh, Facebook, for an example, is, are, you know, it, it, what's interesting, they're talking about well over half of divorces now cite Facebook as one of the contributing factors that people often start relationships online, that it's this lustful desire that starts just playing with something safe. It's just Facebook. Are you willing to take radical action? So how do, what, what does it mean to live this out? Practically, what does it mean to live this out in the way that God is calling us to? Here's what I want you to realize. When we look at what God is saying here, the principle of the command is, first of all, do you remember where we began? People went out and they asked people, you know, what was Christianity like? And, oh, it's a set of rules. It's a, a set of don'ts. Religions are a set of rules. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is about a relationship with God, not based on rule-keeping on what we do to earn his favor, Christianity is a relationship with God that starts with admitting that we're sinners, that we don't deserve his favor, and we ask for grace, unmerited favor. We acknowledge our need, and we accept that Jesus died on the cross, and we ask him to forgive us our sins through Jesus' death on the cross, to give us his righteousness, and he accepts us in relationship based on grace. That's, Christian, that's the Christian gospel. Now, when we talk about this issue, I know in fact, I've talked to pastors. There's a lot of churches that will not give this message. And part of it is that we know it's very countercultural and it might you know, offend the culture. And some pastors, they basically admit there's so many people that have fallen into the sexual sin that we're going to feel like we're stepping on toes, we're going to make people guilty, and we don't want to do that. So they kind of avoid the issue. Now, I believe that God has called me to preach the whole counsel of the gospel. But he's called me to do it in such a way that speaks, as Jesus talks about, that he was full of grace and truth. And part of the truth is this is the truth. These are the consequences. And God warns us this is a foundational principle for life and for culture. And that he warns us about the seriousness of, you know, we can't take things lightly and not walk away scarred. That's truth. But grace is that he invites, if he's not here to condemn us who have fallen short. The message is not one of condemnation. Jesus didn't come with a message of condemnation. He speaks truth so that he invites us to grace. 
because he wants a relationship with us not based on what we've done, but our admission of our need of him and acceptance of forgiveness. So if you're here and you have fallen, we're not trying to condemn you. God isn't trying to condemn you. If you're here today and you are in the midst of, of, of a of sexual relationship outside of marriage, I want to speak God's truth to you, but at the same point of saying it's not to condemn you so that you walk out of here feeling guilty, I want to invite to you because it's God speaking to you because he wants to invite you to come to grace. It's God's way of saying, okay, now surrender that to me. Admit to me. Ask for my forgiveness. Ask for my strength to be able to live what's right. Let me, from this point in time, let me start healing instead of you doing greater damage. So it starts by recognizing the principle is one of grace. Grace and truth. Truth is there, but it's an invitation to grace. And I hope and pray that there are some that, have, that may have wounds from way long past that today that you're healed, that you're there, that you're you know, in the midst of a relationship right now, that today that you're healed, that you take this as seriously as God does because he invites you to forgiveness and grace and healing so that you would know his good gift. But not only that we come in grace, but then we also then understand the core issue now, you might say, well, that's what Jesus was saying when he said, well, if your hand's offending you, cut, out, cut it out, or, 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 you know, and you, your eye, and this core issue. And Well, actually, there's something deeper than that. You know, because when we look at the core issue between all temp- behind all temptation, you know the core issue is ultimately, I don't believe God. It's ultimately a lack of faith and trust in the goodness of God. And when we look at what, you know, we look at that and we think sex is enjoyable and he's holding something back and therefore I choose to go against what God is saying because I think I know better. See, if you struggle with God's commands against sexuality, it's ultimately a lack of faith and confidence in his goodness and his wisdom. It's not that you aren't dealing with temptation. I know that many of people are dealing with temptation. And all of us at various points deal with it tremendously. But if we take it outside of God's design, it will always be destructive. See, but here's what we have to realize. Our response to temptation will always be driven to what we believe. Because if we really believe that God is good, that he is, these principles are to protect us, although it will be hard at times to resist that temptation, I want to I pursue what is good. I want to pursue the blessing. I'm going I'm to say, this is tempting, but why would I do something that's destructive? It's a tasty poison. Why would I eat something that might taste good, but it's going to kill me? Do you believe in God's goodness? Because that will drive us to resist the immediate pleasures of sexual temptation. But even as we look at this, we recognize it's dealing with that. And then once we understand it, that we pursue the blessing. That we pursue the blessing because that's what it's about. In fact, let me go to Hebrews, one more passage in Hebrews, and it refers to a, pass, a story that you wouldn't put necessarily in context of sex. Hebrews chapter uh, 12 it says, uh, says this. See that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. That's talking about Esau and Jacob and birthright. And if you don't know that story, it's in Genesis. You have two brothers. Esau is the older one. He has the birthright. He has the inheritance and one day he's out been out hunting and he's really, really hungry. And his younger brother, Jacob, has made a pot of stew. And he's like, oh man, I'm so hungry, I'm gonna die. And Jacob's like, well, I'll give you some for your birthright, for your inheritance. And Esau, you know, like an idiot, is like, okay, I'll do that. You know, and he you know, gets a pot of stew and he sells inheritance. And later on he's weeping, and, but, but it's like, nope, you sold it. You know, you got a good pot of stew. 
I don't know about you, I've read that before, and I'm thinking, man, what a stupid guy. How could anybody be so dumb? I don't know if you haven't even thought that. And then I read this passage, and you know what it's saying? When we give in to sexual temptation, we're doing the exact same thing as Esau did. We're saying, I've got this sexual desire. I can't help it. I can't. I'm going to die if I don't have sex. I'm gonna... And we have this desire, this hunger, just like he had a physical hunger. We have this, phys this physical hunger of sex, and we sell our birthright. God says, I have this wonderful blessing, and we say, no, I'm going to trade it in. I'm going to just have this hunger for a moment, and I'm going to sell the birthright. And, and, and I can be regretful, and, but the fact is, is that I've, I've already sold it. And, and what was the error that Esau had? He forgot the birthright. He was so hungry that all he saw was the pleasure of the moment, and he forgot this greater treasure. And you know what God is saying? You know why we give in to sexual temptation? Because we forget the birthright. We forget the blessing. We forget this incredible treasure that God has given us, and we're overwhelmed by, I'm hungry, and it's going to give me pleasure at the moment. And if you ever thought that Esau was a total idiot, then look at, look at ourselves when we're tempted to give in sexually, because that's exactly what we're doing. So pursue the blessing. And part of that may mean that one day that you get married, and one day that, you know, protect that marriage, protect what God wants to give you. And maybe you're there, and you're saying, my marriage is terrible. Invest back in your marriage. Let God heal it. God, let God restore it. But even that blessing isn't for every one marriage. There's some people you may not get married or, you know, that you may not get remarried or there may be some people sex, sex, same-sex attraction and say, well, I can't do that. What, how, it's not a blessing of just physical union and marriage. What is the blessing? Go back to Matthew chapter 5. Where does it start? Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed, ble the whole thing is the blessings, the beatitude. Oh, how happy. You want to know how blessed bless life. Figure out how do you live your life in God's design. And there may be times where it's saying no to times that I'm hungry and physical desires, but the fact is whatever God has in store for you, it's a blessing. Why? Because he's good. That's his nature. He's created these things that are good things that he wants to give us. And I don't understand always why he holds things back at certain times. But my friends, there's a blessing. There's a birthright that God wants to have for you. And don't be stupid like Esau who just to satisfy that physical desire, sold the blessing to satisfy hunger. I hope and pray that we believe, learn to believe God all the more, that we learn to pursue the blessing and never settle for less. And recognize that our drive toward that blessing should be so great that it helps us to lose sight of the, prom the temporary promise of the physical pleasure of what our world says about sex. And even if we have fallen short, even if we have made mistakes, we have this truth to hold on to. And that God offers grace and God offers healing. And from this day forward, I can say, God, I want to do it your way. And you know what? God does offer healing. And from this way forward, we can build by his grace and, and find healing and, and find the kind of unique relationship that God has designed us to have.